Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hello, everyone. This is Cal Raustiala, co-host of the International Law Behind the Headlines podcast, brought to you by the American Society of International Law. Uh, this is our first episode of 2021, and I'm really happy to have on uh, both a friend and a colleague, Duncan Hollis, who is the Laura Carnell Professor of Law at Temple University Beasley School of Law. Uh, Duncan is uh, both a former State Department lawyer, but also most relevant for our discussion today, the editor of the Oxford Guide to Treaties, which is now out in its second edition. Uh, And I'll disclose that I'm a contributor to that guide and a fan of it. I think it's a a really excellent overview of, of really all aspects of treaties. And so I've invited Duncan on the podcast to talk about treaties and specifically to talk about issues revolving around entering and exiting. So in the Trump administration, of course, we saw a number of treaties exited or talked about exiting, as well as international organizations uh, talked about exiting uh, and even initiated an exiting. And now under President Biden, we're seeing a reversal of some of that. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to bring Duncan on to discuss the legal issues surrounding uh, both of those kind of maneuvers. So Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cal. Thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Great, great. So uh, maybe what we could do is take an example or two. I'm thinking of two that we kind of discussed previously, you and I, that I think represent interesting interesting issues uh, around exit and entrance. So one would be the World Health Organization, and we've initiated under President Trump an exit, uh, but not completed. And then the other is the Paris Accord, which presents a slightly different set of issues because it's not, in fact, um, well, I guess I'll let you describe what's, what the different issues are. I don't want to preempt. So um, so maybe we could begin with those two, and you could kind of give us the lay of the land on both the exit and the re-entrance that we, we should expect to see. Sure. Yeah. So I think, like, first, like, it's important to note at the outset that, um, you know, treaties, uh, uh, duration of treaties is kind of in, in the hands of the negotiators. And so, um, you know, there are certain times where states will conclude a treaty and they'll, they'll have a set end date in mind, a, a sunset clause or something like that, and the treaty will last for only five years or seven years. And then in other cases, it's possible that the treaty is going to, you know, be designed to go on in, per- in perpetuity unless a particular party seeks to, to withdraw its participation, particularly in multilateral treaties. And so I think what we, we've seen here is a number of instances where there are multilateral treaties that the Trump administration decided it wanted out of, and, and each of those treaties has had different provisions for how you get out. And so you mentioned the WHO. Right, so that has a, has a notice provision that requires a set. I think it was one year. I'm not I'm not 100 certain on that, but you know, a, a termination uh, period before it's legally effective. You have to give notice and then wait that period before you're actually out. Um, and you know, what happened is that notice was given, but the period hasn't uh, elapsed, and so uh, a new administration um, uh, can come in, as the Biden administration uh, has done, and, and go to the you know to the WHO, go to the United Nations, the Secretariat, and say. Um, actually, we withdraw our withdrawal notice. We're, we're still in, and that's a pretty simple executive act, uh, and it's not, uh, uh, you know, terribly difficult. Um, it may raise, I guess, you know, um, some domestic law issues, but not not too many. I think the Paris Agreement is a little more complicated in that 
under the Paris Agreement, which is you know the successor to the Kyoto Protocol on, on climate change, you have to uh, once you join, you're locked in for three years, so you cannot get out for for three years after you've consented to be bound. Uh, and then you, if you give notice, you you have a, a year before that notice is legally effective. And the Trump administration did so. Um, and um, it, it, with some irony, I think that legally effective termination occurred the day after the 2020 election. So I think it was November 4th, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, that, that, um, that the Paris Agreement uh, withdrawal was effective for the United States. So the U.S. is officially out of the Paris Agreement. And so um, to to you know, have it be legally binding on the U.S. again required an affirmative act of of rejoining. That is, you know, uh, indicating the U.S. ratification, uh, accession, or approval, which uh, President Biden did, uh, as as I understand it, on uh, his first day in office. Great. So, just to give us a sense of what's typical in treaties, uh, and I realize you know, when we're talking about either multilateral or bilateral treaties, there are I don't know if you have a number at your fingertips. I know this is a contested issue, but we're talking about upwards of 50,000, 100,000 agreements around the world. Is that a fair range? Yeah. So I think if you, you know, the, the, probably the biggest compilation is states report, register their treaties with the United Nations. Um, and uh, there are at least la by last count, 72,000 treaties registered with the United Nations. Although everybody agrees that's an undercount because um, right. Many states are delayed in doing so, and some treaties just they don't they don't bother registering. And and I think you know for the United States, uh, the U.S. is party to well more than ten thousand uh, treaties uh, in the international law sense of that term uh, today. Yeah, so I'm only raising that to say when we talk about what's typical or standard uh, in a multilateral context, or for that matter, a bilateral context. Uh, it's difficult to say because we don't actually have a fantastic grasp on the full panoply of, of agreements out there. But, but given what we do know, um, do most treaties have a specified time period laid out in the way or process elaborated akin to either the WHO example or the Paris example? Do they usually remain silent on this issue? What's sort of the, the default that we tend to see? I think um, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years, you've seen um, a default that it is uh, a question of regime design that the negotiators take seriously and they think about. Um, you know, Professor Larry Helfer at Vanderbilt's written about this, that you, you've seen states craft um, kind of exit clauses uh, with an eye towards, you know, how do, how do we attract states to join the treaty in the first place? And, and again, there's kind of a trade-off here that, you know, you, you know, states are interested in joining treaties, but they also don't want to get involved in a treaty where they join and then they discover that, you know, others they thought were going to join don't, or the treaty doesn't operate as expected. And so, you know, having uh, set expectations as you enter about your ability to exit uh, can often provide a reassurance that, 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 that draws states into the treaty. And so I think you'll, you'll see a lot of treaties today will have specifically kind of tailored and crafted exit clauses. And mostly, in, in most cases, it's some sort of notice period. I mean, there are also exit clauses where, you know, there's a right to withdraw about if certain number of parties, you know, if you fall below a certain number of parties, then other parties can withdraw. Or if certain decisions or operations or activities occur, a withdrawal right is imposed. But, but the vast majority of cases are a state can withdraw on, say, 12 months notice. 
And is the logic of the 12-month notice that the other counterparties would also perhaps change their view about adherence to the treaty if party X is out and therefore they might also want to exit. And so we want to make sure it's, is it sort of a circuit breaker to stop a cascade of exits or what's, what's the underlying logic behind having a delay? So I, I do think it's a circuit breaker, right? I think that that's one thing that it does. I also think that, that it, it is also something that separates out uh, treaties from other types of agreements, say like a non-binding agreement. One of, one of the values of, of the treaty, right, is that it's legally binding. And, and part of what I think signals that bindingness is this idea that um, you cannot voluntarily walk away. And so kind of by imposing that kind of exit period, it kind of reinforces the notice that, that this is not an entirely voluntary set of commitments. These are commitments that have lasting effect even after you've made a decision to walk away. There's kind of that, that period on the state. And then I think the, the third thing beyond the circuit breaker and beyond kind of uh, being kind of a quintessential part of, of what we'd call a treaty is to give the state itself the opportunity perhaps to reconsider and rethink, right? So I think it's quite uh, important, for example, we see in the WHO case that having that 12-month period was quite important because it's given you know, a change in administrations, an opportunity to revisit the policy decision to walk away and to say, no, we're not, we're prepared not, you know, we're not prepared to do that. We actually want to stay in. What would have happened if instead the we were, or let's say a longer period of time had elapsed, or in other words, we were fully out of both uh, Paris and the WHO, would that have really changed anything in terms of the legal process of re-entering? So I don't know that it does from, from the international law perspective, right? So, you know, international law, when you're out, right, you, you then are going back to, well, all right, what are the mechanisms for consenting to be bound? And the treaty will usually spell those out, and it can be, you know, something as simple signature. Uh, it could be ratification, which is you could have to go back to your parliament, or in our case, to the Senate or the Congress to get authority to, you know, advice and consent to join, and then you ratify or uh, otherwise exceed. But it's also possible in some ways that you could just, you know, rejoin, a, you know, as an executive matter. And so I think the challenge for things uh, like these withdrawals, like something like the Paris Agreement is, you know, do you need to engage in a different domestic procedure? Um, now, the Paris Agreement, of course, was done by um, President Obama without going to the Senate or without going to Congress. I think it's much more complicated if you were dealing with, you know, an exit from a treaty that the Senate had given advice and consent to, and then you withdraw, and then you want to rejoin. And the question is, well, do you have to go back and get the Senate to give advice and consent a second time? Or having had them give it that first time, can, can a new president just rejoin without having to, you know, check that constitutional box? Right, right. I want to come back to the issue of Paris and its, uh, and its domestic side. And obviously, we need to keep the, the American constitutional kind of foreign relations law dimension separate from the public international dimensions. But just to, to talk about treaties that are sort of both, both fully treaties at the international level and uh, Article II treaties with Senate uh, approval in the domestic context, let's take an example that didn't happen but was talked about which was exiting NATO. Uh, and so I guess I'm curious whether you think if Trump had followed through on exiting NATO, um, is it your view that, and I realize you're an expert more on treaty law at the, at the international level rather than the domestic context, but you know both. Do you think that it would be appropriate for a president to do that without consulting with the Senate? 
or Congress generally? And do you think it would be constitutional? So I, you know, I think what's remarkable is it's it's a novel question. You know, uh, several centuries into the existence of the United States, that we we don't have a, a fixed answer on it. Um, uh, you know, I think there are a few scholars that have taken positions on this. So Professor Jean Galbraith, uh, for example, has suggested that it would be constitutional for the for a new president to rejoin NATO without going back uh, to the to the Senate, that that original Senate advice and consent is sufficient to allow for kind of multiple uh, withdrawals and rejoining, um, you know, but one could, could imagine that the Senate might have strong views on this, um, you know, and, and the nature of the treaty power is that it is a, you know, in some ways it is uh, a political power that the courts have let the political branches sort out the exercise thereof. And so in some ways, I think it, it might be really a question of how the Senate feels about it, because the Senate has, you know, tools if it disagrees with a decision that the executive branch is taking to try and signal that disapproval or, or, um, or ensure that its interests are advocated. You know, the new START treaty, for example, which is also in, in the mix here in the next couple of weeks, you know, kind of famously got its origins when uh, President Bush said that he was going to do it either as a political commitment or as a, an executive agreement and not send it to the Senate. And then um, Senator uh, Joe Biden and Jesse Helms uh, indicated that the Senate uh, was exercising bipartisanly uh, uh, their prerogative to insist that it be sent and that there would be no ambassadors and no other appointments approved by the Senate unless the executive branch sent it along. And so in some ways you've seen, and actually that was the Moscow agreement, not the new start agreement, but an earlier arms control agreement um, the Moscow agreement was actually sent through uh, the Senate because of that exercise of Senate prerogatives, independent of what scholars might've written about it. And we, we see something we can imagine something similar happening here where the Senate would have its own views on the constitutionality of, say, rejoining NATO without going back to the Senate or, or, or not. Yeah, as I recall, uh, Goldwater v. Carter discussed uh, this issue with regard to Carter unilaterally terminating uh, our mutual defense treaty with Taiwan as part of normalizing uh, relationships relations with the PRC uh, and Goldwater brought a suit, and, and uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering right, it was um, declared a political question um, by maybe only four justices. I'm trying to remember now. It exactly. was a plurality. You're right. I think, right. Yeah, so. it was only a plurality that decided to do that, um, but the case was dismissed um, by a majority, and so we don't really have a definitive answer on even just the exit part. Is it something the president can do, um, you know, on his or her own? Accord, which does is is an interesting question. Should the president, just as a kind of conceptual matter, if you require Senate approval to get in, wouldn't you also need it to go back out? And I guess the countervailing view would be no, you don't, because they're two very different acts. They have very different meanings. Yeah, and I think you, you've seen it. I think the practice has clearly uh, been that con Congress and the Senate, in particular, have acquiesced now in a number of these cases. And so you have folks like Kurt Bradley and Jack Goldsmith arguing that, that whatever the original uh, framework might have been that, you know, we now as, a, you know, that it has become constitutional uh, in some ways that there's a, you know, there is a constitutional right for executive withdrawal. Um, but, you know, folks like Harold Coe have suggested in other contexts that may not be universal or there may be conditions where you would have to go back. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's kind of a live issue. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. We haven't sorted that issue out yet. And so, you know, how do we deal with a president uh, like, you know, 
the former President Trump, who withdrew from a number uh, number of these uh, instruments without consulting with the legislature. So that raises a set of issues. And now that you know, there's the follow-on question of what sort of approval is required to rejoin. It, it is um, not murky, but definitely uh, novel questions uh, that we're facing these days. Right. It could be a very, very different Senate. I mean, certainly if it were NATO and that hypothetical, you know, the Senate that confirmed uh, the NATO agreement uh, is wildly different in so many ways from the Senate today. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 70, 75 years uh, or more or close to it. Um, whereas in some of the cases, it would be a, a less dramatic change. But yeah, that would seem to suggest that maybe you need to revisit with the Senate. And of course, our whole system seems predicated on a notion of the Senate the Senate's prerogatives, which I guess can happen, you gave us an example of bipartisan support for the prerogatives of the Senate. I personally have a hard time seeing that happening today. I just don't. Yeah, I don't, no, I, th- I think th- I think that's right. I mean, I think you know maybe one of the things to 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 kind of set the stage for all of this is how much we've seen both in the United States in particular the treaty making process break down over the last decade plus. Um, right. That, you know, can you imagine a, a Senator Helms and a Senator Biden, you know, their equivalents today kind of joining forces as the Senate vis-a-vis the president, as opposed to the, the partisan politics where uh, party seems to, to trump political branches these days? Um, that, you know, that's that's, a, I think, a, a significant, um, you know, challenge. And, and let's be clear that we're also kind of in this wave of treaty withdrawals that, you know, it is true the U.S. has has done this, but, you know, the United States is not the only country. We've seen a number of countries withdrawing from the Rome Statute. We've seen countries withdrawing from the International Convention, uh, you know, on uh, the ICSID Convention, on the Settlement of Investment Disputes. Um, bilateral investment treaties were seeing withdrawals. In fact, I think in like 2017, there were more terminations of bilateral investment treaties than new ones being made. And so there is, I think, a, a larger kind of geopolitical pattern here that is um, relatively novel. Um, you know, for, for well over a century, I think we just kind of seen the gradual accretion of treaty commitments. Uh, and, you know, some would fade into what we might call dissuetude, right? Some might not get used or not might get not get terribly relied on and might fade into the background. But we haven't, I think, seen a period of active retrenchment, withdrawal, and termination like we've seen over the last, you know, decade or so. And it obviously it raises, you know, both international law questions and foreign affairs questions, you know, under the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because a number of people, both uh, in academia and in the U.S. government or former government officials, have written about the idea that, you know, maybe treaties, not that we're done with treaties, because obviously there's, as we talked about in the beginning, maybe 100,000 treaties. They're not exactly going away. But that the notion that we need a lot more treaties or that treaties are going to be our primary tool, that that may be changing. Um, And certainly from a U.S. perspective, the Senate does I mean, it's, it's long been considered the graveyard of treaties, um, but it certainly seems like a pretty, pretty empty um, promise right now for treaty passage in many contexts. Uh, so, yeah, we may be entering a period in which treaties, as we understand them domestically, are less useful. Of course, internationally, it's a different question. Those, those um, presidential agreements are still treaties under international law in many cases. Yeah, like I actually, so I, I consciously, you know, if I, as you mentioned at the outset, I did the second edition of this Oxford Digest Treaties that I've 
that I've worked on on and off now for, for over well over a decade. And I kind of start off with the, the Dickens quote from a tale of two cities, right. You know, is the best of times is the right. worst of times. And I, you know, I'd say that about treaties, right. So in some ways, right. As you, you already hinted, we've got, you know, um, 72,000 of these on the international stage, more than 10,000 binding the U S um, you know, um, I think, you know, almost every international lawyer out there, you know, knows that treaties are ubiquitous to the current practice, right? Like, you know, almost any international law question touches a treaty in some way or another, you know, and, you know, that's the business of all these international courts and tribunals. Um, and and we, we've seen a bunch of major international treaties, albeit not necessarily those the U.S. has joined, you know, in the last, you know, five, 10 years, you know, whether it's the, you know, the you know, convention uh, on the, you know, trying to, uh, the treaty to ban nuclear weapons, or, you know, there's been some other treaties on, uh, you know, humanitarian relief, dispute settlement, the environment. Um, and so, you know, it's not necessarily all a negative story, but that, that negative stuff is out there. And as you also know, there's this rise of these alternatives, right? That today, when you're thinking about international agreement, the choice is not to treaty or not to treaty. Uh, you know, the choice is, do I want to do a treaty or do I want to do a political commitment? Or do I want to do like a, a, you know, a domestic law contract among states, which is another option that we see from time to time. And so I think, you know, um, there's definitely a, a richer, more complex practice that's ongoing in terms of new deals at the same time as we're seeing kind of t- treaty terminations and withdrawals. Great. That's a really good pivot point to talk a little bit about Paris, where we started off. So um, we know that Par- so Paris is an interesting and important agreement, but as you pointed out in your kind of opening remarks, it uh, didn't go to the Senate. There was a moment where it looked like it might have to, uh, and John Kerry kind of flipped out, and the lawyers caught something and um, and fixed it. Why don't you tell us that story a little bit and why that was important? So you know, in other words, what what kind of uh, flows from that? Yeah, so I think. Like first and foremost, I think you know there's this this impression uh, often one sees in, in the media and otherwise that Paris Agreement's not a treaty or that it's not binding, and that that's actually inaccurate. I mean that if you actually get the text out, there are binding commitments in it. It has language on a withdrawal. It has a withdrawal clause. It has you know makes the different languages equally authentic. Uh, it has provisions for. Um, you know, mandatory reporting and mandatory information sharing. Uh, and yet the kind of the core uh, idea behind Paris Agreement was there would be these nationally determined contributions that states would make that would help uh, lead to the reduction uh, uh, of greenhouse gases and, you know, hold temperature rise to, to a particular level. Um, and, and what's interesting there was that the, the story is, is that as the final negotiations were happening, um, uh, the, the key clause you know, had, you know, talked about developing, uh, developed countries, you know, um, should take the lead uh, on these national, you know, on having nationally determined contributions. And the French text apparently went from the, the, the aspirational should to the mandatory shall. And, you know, that kind of uh, spilled over. And actually, it was, a, uh, you know, some lawyers that were part of the delegation that brought this to the head of the delegation, then Secretary of State Kerry, and said, you know, this is going to take this agreement out of the context where we think we can tell President Obama he can do this as an executive agreement, doesn't need to go to Congress, doesn't need to go to the Senate, and it's going to be the sort of thing where it's going to have a real big binding element to it. And so, at, you know, and this is at the 11th hour, apparently Kerry went back to the negotiators and said the U.S. was not going to join unless the, the, the shall became a should and kind of, kind of threatened to grind everything to a halt. 
uh, and there was uh, apparently some, you know, you know, uh, extensive, quick, high-level, uh, uh, last-minute rounds of exchanges of negotiations that led the the shall to be changed to a should, um, and then the 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 adoption of the agreement proceeded as planned, and the U.S. was able to join. Um, and you know that so it's kind of a, a an interesting story of just how much even a single word can matter to treaty lawyers in this case. Um, um, you know, although you know it does kind of there it does beg the question. Uh, of you know how much they would have been bl- you know blocked to having to go to the Senate or Congress if it had ended up as shell or where they would have found another way around it. Yeah, let's drill down on that point a little bit because I think a lot turns on obviously or or it's believed to turn on that that word change. Um, but I wonder if that was really the correct reading on the part of the State Department lawyers. And you know, I'm the last person to impugn our you know our excellent State Department lawyers. But does that really? Number one, does that really matter in the full context of Paris? Uh, and does it really matter as a, as a matter of foreign relations law, whether it would go to the Senate or not? So maybe unpack that a little bit more if you can. Why, let's start with the, the second part first. Why would it have had to go to the Senate for approval uh, if it had said shall? What's the theory behind that? I mean, I, I don't, yeah. And again, I'm not sure it would go to the Senate or whether you would have had to get some sort of you know, legislative implementation. I think the idea was that if it's written as a should, that existing statutory authorities uh, allowed the EPA, allowed the federal government to to make kind of aspirational uh, policies about what sort of reductions in greenhouse gas emissions would, would occur within the United States, um, as it were. And that, that if you were going to suddenly make those, those contributions mandatory, you know, as a matter of international law and treaty law, then the policy of the U.S. is usually we don't we don't enter into treaty commitments where we don't have the domestic legal framework to satisfy them. And then that would have begged: Do we need some sort of implementing statute that expands federal law to 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 incorporate um, you know making these mandatory, or would we need the Senate in some way to sign off and advice and consent to that? Um, because you know, Senate advice and consent treaties are the supreme law of the land and, and might have the equivalent of a, a statutory effect. And so I think, you know, that was the fear, um, or maybe it was the fear that it would even, that, you know, it would open up such questions and add an additional uh, controversial element to a, to an agreement that was already, I think, pretty controversial in the U.S. just because we have such a strange division over, you know, the, the climate science and, and the like. And so, you know, I think for, for, the, for the State Department to get it to be the should made it much easier to say, look, you know, all this agreement does is it requires us to meet, it requires us to report, and requires us to share information. Those are all things that we do as a matter of U.S. foreign relations every day. They fall within the president's sole executive powers. There's nothing in existing statutes uh, that, you know, a la the, you know, the steel seizure case suggests uh, we have to, you know, that Congress disapproves of that approach in this instance so we can go forward. And I think that was kind of the, the the logic that led them to to stick their feet in the ground and insist on should over shall. Yeah, I mean, certainly politically, that makes a lot of sense. Just to give listeners uh, a little more context, I'm just going to read the actual provision. So this is from Article 4, uh, Part 4. And the language is developed country parties, i.e. the United States and others, should continue taking the lead by undertaking economy-wide absolute emission reduction targets. And that should... Uh, in the French version, temporarily, was shall continue taking the lead by undertaking 
uh, emission reduction targets. So I guess the issue would really turn on, do you think that, um, you know, so if you think that this requires us to, certainly if it said Shell, it would require us to have a, an, an emission reduction target. So if we didn't want to create one, um, that would be a problem under the terms of the treaty. And I guess the should is interesting because it seems to say in its current form, um, it's like an endeavor. We have to endeavor to do this. Uh, it would seem like basic principles of good faith under treaty interpretation would require us to try to do it. Um, but we don't have to actually do it. Is that, does that seem like the reading that you would give it? Yeah, I think that's like my sense is that by, by turning it into a should, it becomes, you know, aspirational in, in the sense that the U.S. could always have said, you know, oh, you know, we understand we should have done this. We were unable to do it, um, and, you know, for these, you know, these reasons. And therefore, you, you know, it's difficult to see that you would trigger state responsibility. There'd be allegations of breach if with, with the should verb. Whereas the shall verb, I think, would have opened up such questions. I'm not sure they would, you know, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain the U.S. Would, would be, you know, found in breach in such circumstances, but it, but it would have created at least avenues for such sort of arguments the U.S. might have wanted to have avoid. Right. I suppose you could have also struck the word reduction. So if you simply said parties shall continue to create uh, emission targets, that's fine, because the target could be up, it could be down, it could be anything. Um, but the reduction word requires the target to be some kind of reduction. Now, it doesn't say, is it a reduction over a trend line? Is it a reduction in real terms? You know, there's lots of ways to wiggle around. Um, but I could imagine why a cautious lawyer in the State Department would say, let's just avoid this entire, um, you know, maybe, maybe overly academic discussion of what these words mean and just get rid of shell which was probably politically the sensible choice. I mean, I, th I think that's, I think that's certainly, you know, an acceptable narrative for understanding. And, and uh, you know, it's been the one I tend to think about, although in, in, in hearing you talk about it, it also occurs to me, you know, there's, there could have been other stories here, which is, you know, putting aside the, the academic and theoretical questions, you know, as a practical matter, when delegations go to major multilateral co uh, conferences like that, you know, there is often, um, whether it's a, we call it a circular 175 memo or other, you know, instructions for the delegation uh, that are vetted throughout the government, you know, that have the Defense Department and the Treasury Department, and the Commerce Department all signing off. You know, one wonders also if there wasn't some, something here that might have been with, you know, internal to the U.S. government where, uh the, the, the negotiators thought they had the whole U.S. government behind them if they stay in the should camp, but the concern was if it went to shall, um, you know, putting aside whether they'd have to take it to Congress or they'd have to take it to the, to the Senate, they might have had concern about whether this would unravel an internal interagency uh, uh, consensus on how, how to approach this. And, you know, so that, you know, from a practical perspective, that might also explain uh, the, the reluctance to, to take the, the, the French uh, slip of the text change and, and to push back on it so strongly. Yeah, Duncan, that's a really good point, because I think anyone who's familiar with that interagency process knows it's not easy. Uh, DOD and other actors obviously have opinions and a lot of power, and getting, getting agreement of, of the United States government across the board on something is really difficult. So I think that's a really, I don't know whether that's what happened, but it's a very, very plausible uh, story. So we're almost at the end of our time, but I just was curious whether you see, just looking ahead a little bit, do you see other emerging challenges or issues with regard to treaty entry or exit under a Biden administration? So, um, so in other words, we've talked about Paris, we mentioned the WHO, there's a few others. 
uh, new start, et cetera, we didn't talk about. Um, but I'm curious if there's something you see kind of over the horizon that may turn out to be a problem in the coming years. Right. So I think like you, you just hit on, I mean, I think there's some, some that are like immediate issues of concern. So I think like uh, as, as we record this, I think, you know, uh, President Biden had initial consultations with Putin, President Putin of Russia, and, you know, they're, they're on the clock to finalize uh, uh, the continuation of the New START arms control agreement, arms control treaty or not. And it's, it, you know, if they don't do so, it will by its own terms expire. And so I think that, you know, that that's going to be kind of an immediate issue that, you know, builds on the WHO and Paris Agreement examples we've talked about. Uh, you know, there are other decisions that the Biden administration is going to have to make. You know, the U.S. withdrew for the second time from UNESCO. Uh, we first withdrew, I think it was in the Reagan administration. And so, you yes. know, the question of whether the U.S. rejoins that. Uh, the Open Skies, uh, another kind of arms control related treaty has expired. And there's a question uh, you know, of whether there's an effort for the U.S. to kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, recraft that agreement, which, you know, is a little more, can be a little more difficult, um, you know, because that one, again, like Paris, the U.S. is out. And so it's not a simply a, hey, can we agree to continue or, hey, can we stop the withdrawal termination process? Um, but I also think, yeah, lar the larger question is, you know, is the, you know, how, how is the Senate process, the Senate advising process, you know, totally broken such that as the U.S. contemplates future areas of international agreement and cooperation, um, is it going to be driven much more to, say, like the Iran deal, uh, to try for creative mixing of uh, political commitments and then using things like the U.N. Security Council or other tools uh, of international law and international organizations to, to, to give them effect? Um, you know, is, is that the future, um, or are there going to be ways to maybe you know, emphasize more congressional executive agreements like we've often used in the trade context, whether it was NAFTA or, you know, the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, free trade agreement. Um, and so I think I would expect that we'll see a, a greater diversity of, of ways to create international agreement. And I think that is also part of a larger uh, global movement where other states are, are similarly inclined you know, whether that's normatively good or not, I, you know, I think we have to ask the question. I, I do worry sometimes that a lot of these ways, uh, maybe, you know, in the interest of speed and flexibility, quite useful, but the democratic accountability side uh, may suffer, right? If, if you know, there, there is, there are good reasons why you want a Senate or a Congress to sign off on and authorize U.S. participation in agreements that do, you know, constrain uh, U.S. behavior in significant ways. Um, and, and I and I think those are important, and we need to think about, you know, how do we ensure similar oversight in a world of, say, political commitments or you know, interstate contracting and the like. I agree. I think those are really, really excellent points uh, to close on. So, Duncan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I hope we can have you on again sometime. It was a real pleasure, Cal. Always great to chat. Great. Take care. Bye.